Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 24th, 2015, and my guest is David Zetland of Leiden University College in the Netherlands and the author of Living with Water Scarcity. David, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks, Russ. It's great to be here. Our topic for today is water, the stuff of life, and what economics has to say about it. We'll be talking about your book, Living with Water Scarcity, which is available without charge on the internet. We'll put a link up to it. Many people argue that water is a right, a necessity, and no one should have to pay for it. What is your response to that? Uh, there's two responses to that. The first one is that uh, – well, three actually. The first one is that uh, water might be a right, but getting the water to your house or to your tap or to your field if you're a farmer uh, is going to cost some money in terms of energy, infrastructure, and so on. Uh, the second uh, response is that uh, if uh, water is a right and, for example, you're going to give it away for free, uh, then people are going to use a lot of water based on that price – And uh, that might be a problem in terms of running out of water because demand is greater than supply. Uh, The third response, uh, which comes up in the discussions of a human right to water, is that uh, just because you make it a right doesn't mean the government's going to deliver it. So it seems to be a bit of a a red herring, in fact, to call it a human right because uh, people get distracted with laws and rights instead of bigger, more important issues like water governance. And I think it's worth emphasizing right at the start that uh, water, like many things, food or health, that, that are, quote, necessities in uh, in some sense, how much we use of them, even though they're, quote, necessities, to, if you want to stay alive, uh, how much you use of them depends on usually what it, what it costs you to get at them. And there's a lot of things that are – there's if you don't eat, you die. But the ninth uh, ice cream sundae is not a necessity. Yeah, that's a that's a great point, and and uh, it comes up all the time when people talk about uh, you know you can't raise the price of water because uh, people are not going to be able to afford it and they won't take showers and so on. And um, this was actually uh, mentioned long ago in, in Adam Smith's book uh, when he talked or the the Wealth of Nations when he talked about the diamond water paradox, the idea that water is extremely valuable but we sell it for cheap, and and that uh, uh, paradox, so to speak, was resolved uh, by the marginal. Uh, economists 100 years later when they said, well, yes, the first bits of water that you get are very, very valuable and you're willing to pay a lot. But once you already have a lot of water, then the price is quite low. And that's how we we have to think about water. Some of it is very valuable and, and we're willing to pay a lot for it. And then once we have a lot, it's we use it for all kinds of things that may be much lower values. Yeah, like the 40th minute of the shower. Um, exactly. So – I want to start – just to give listeners a little bit of a roadmap, we're going to start with um, the developed countries and how they treat water, and then we'll move on to the uh, undeveloped or developing and or poorer countries. I want to start with the United States. Um, California, you, you talk about San Diego. So uh, every city – not every city, but many, many cities handle water very, very differently in terms of how it's priced and how it's delivered and your access to it. So I want to take some some extremes uh, around the world and uh, make and and see the contrast. So let's start with San Diego. Tell me about San Diego's water. San Diego uh, is uh, in the, the the lower southwest corner of the U.S. Uh, it's a very hot area. It does not get a lot of precipitation. There's very little storage in terms of under uh, underground storage and aquifers, um, and uh, the population of San Diego quickly outrun. Uh, outran water supplies uh, years and years ago. In fact, around World War II is when things started getting uh, dire. Uh, and uh, and because people wanted to live in this beautiful climate. Uh, and so San Diego depends on imported water that it gets uh, from more or less two sources. One is uh, Northern California and the other is or via the Sacramento San Joaquin Delta, which is a interesting uh, uh, political uh, problem as well as the Colorado River, uh, where the water is pumped up and down over hills for several hundred miles. Uh, The important factor in terms of San Diego's water supply is that those two sources are controlled by the Metropolitan Water District, uh, of of which San Diego is a member, 
but not a controlling member. So San Diego uh, is a little bit dependent on Metropolitan in terms of its water supplies. Explain what Metropolitan is. What is that? Yeah, it's it's a it's depending on how you count it. It's one of the biggest water utilities in the country. It's it's one that almost no one has heard of. Uh, it was founded in uh, 1929 or so uh, at, with the purpose of of importing water to Southern California from the Colorado River. It has uh, 26 member agencies. Uh, San Diego is the largest purchaser of water by volume. It's actually the San Diego County Water Authority, which in turn sells to, I think, around 15 to 20 uh, agencies that that are its members. Um, but the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power is a big member of Metropolitan. Beverly Hills is a little member of Metropolitan. So uh, Metropolitan is a consortium of, of uh, cities as well as wholesale districts that uh, brings water into Southern California. And if I'm a San Diego resident, um, I probably don't know anything about that. I just turn on my tap or turn on my sprinkler or take my shower and I just enjoy the water. But um, somebody's paying for it. So how much do San Diegoans pay uh, for their water? So uh, I, I looked up some statistics uh, in, our, in advance of our talk and it uh, – it depends a little bit on what you call uh, uh, block rate pricing, which means that the first bit of water is cheaper than the next bit of water. Uh, but the statistic that I found is that uh, San Diego citizens pay about $5.20 per thousand gallons for water. And I did all the numbers in U.S. dollars and, and gallons for the benefit of America. So say that again, $5.20. $5.20 per thousand gallons. Per thousand gallons. And since right. I don't uh, – I have a little trouble thinking about a thousand gallons. So <laughs> – uh, it's Think a about a thousand lattes. Yeah, that's well, it's a big, but it's a big latte. So yeah, sorry, how, I had the, I had the I got my numerator denominator wrong. Yeah, it's a lot of water. How much? How much might I use in a shower? Uh, so okay, so I don't have a good answer for you there. It's probably about. Uh, the the high efficiency showers are using about I think about five gallons per minute. Okay. So, uh, and in, in San Diego, people use an average of 150 gallons per person per day. Okay, so that's uh, a good that's a good number. So, 150 yeah. gallons per person per day. So, I pay about if I'm a San Diegoan, I pay about um, uh, let's say you said it was five dollars per thousand. Right. So, I'm paying about a sixth. I'm paying about a dollar a day for my water. I pay about 360 bucks a year right. for, to have infinite. Um, near him, not quite, but lots of water whenever I want it. Right. Now, the, 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 there's caveats with that prices. First thing is that you have fixed charges which show up every month, and those are usually quite small uh, in water utilities around the world, especially facing water scarcity because they load a lot of their costs onto the variable price of water. The other thing is that um, if they do have increasing block rates, then uh, your infinite consumption will start to cost more per unit of water if you go up to a lot of consumption per day. Okay, but it's still relative. But but if I'm consuming 150 gallons a day, which seems like an enormous amount, which which right. uh, uh, hard to imagine, that must include some industrial um, uses, some business uses inside the city, I assume, right? Uh, not usually. So, it, and, and by the way, the, so the statistics on water consumption are are usually done on a on a macro scale. Uh, so it's what that means is sometimes they do divide. They take the entire population and they uh, uh, take the entire water use and they get the the, the consumption per capita per day. Uh, and that's, for example, how I got the statistics for Sydney. But sometimes they they do know the residential customer use right. and they do divide through by the residential population, which they estimate because most utilities don't know how many customers they actually serve. Then that's how they often get these uh, these consumption figures. So as you. To talk about Sydney, in your book, you point out that San Diegans consume about twice as much water as people in Sydney and about five times as much as people in Amsterdam. Is that because they uh, really like to shower for a long time? That's because they have lawns. And <laughs> so pools. what are they? And yeah, laws and that, what? That, lawns and pools. Uh -huh. No, not laws, but lawns. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And sometimes there are actually laws because some homeowners associations and even city uh, charters – require that you have a green lawn in front of your house. Right. Uh, so how about the pricing side, though? Is the pricing different in Sydney and, and in uh, Amsterdam? Uh, the pricing is, is significantly different from Las Vegas. Uh, the price in San Diego, we just mentioned, is around $5 per thousand gallons. 
the price in Sydney is around six and a half dollars per thousand gallons. And in Amsterdam, it's roughly the same as San Diego, around 530 per thousand gallons. So then that's mostly just the, the demand curve is, is farther out is further out for uh, San Diegans because those lawns and pools. Exactly. It's more, you know, you can call it uh, culture or you can call it lifestyle. But what about the cost? Does it cost about the same to deliver a gallon of water to a San Diegan as it does to an Amsterdam person or an Amsterdamian or a uh, (laughs) Sydneyan? There's uh, yes and no. So uh, in, in the case of Amsterdam, it's pretty clear that the cost of delivering water uh, and almost all of these utilities are are regulated, whether or not they're private uh, in terms of investor owned or they're public, they're municipal. So they're all regulated to have prices that are close to their cost. This is important for people that are thinking about, you know, gouging monopolies. But the price of the system in Amsterdam is uh, uh, more or less uh, fully costed into the water in terms of the equipment and the energy and, and the, the watershed protection, which is very important uh, given Amsterdam's low uh, um, uh, profile. Uh, it's low elevation. In San Diego, they'll say exactly the same thing. Yes, we pay for wholesale water for Metropolitan. We have to pay for water conservation campaigns and our headquarters and so on. But most of Southern California water consumption does not include any kind of price for what you would call environmental sustainability. And that would be uh, something, so that kind of shadow price would would add significantly to the cost of water. What, what does that mean, environmental sustainability? Well, well, for example, like we're wrecking the Colorado River, you suggest? Yeah, definitely. So the Colorado River uh, in the last, uh, say, 20 years uh, has not reached its delta with you know, anything close to uh, a, a normal flow. Uh, so it dries out before it gets there because all the water is taken out of the river by various users, uh, San Diego being one of them, but mostly it's agricultural users. And and let's go to Las Vegas, which is in the middle of a desert. Uh, what yes. are they doing? How how can people live in Las Vegas? How are they managing that? Uh, well, they're they're a little bit on the edge of tipping off into the abyss because uh, Las Vegas, uh, number one, the 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 city has had a very uh, pro growth, uh, cheap water policy going for decades, uh, and all the people in, in Las Vegas, as, as you probably recall, was, it was one of the fastest growing municipalities in the United States for a long time until the financial crisis kind of knocked the wind out of it. Um, and they sell their water very, very cheap. They sell it for about a quarter of the price uh, of all these other cities we've been talking about. Um, and the consumption of water is higher than all the cities we've been talking about. It's, uh, they're, they're at 220 gallons per capita per day. And their, their goal by 2035, which is 20 years from now, is to reduce that to below 200 gallons per capita per day. How, how do they plan to get there? <clears throat> nagging and whining? I mean, nagging uh, and, and pestering? Or Yeah, well, I, you know, in the, in the book, I, I mentioned that the, the water is very cheap, and, and, uh, and so they, they actually pay people to take their lawns out. They have um, what's called the lawn rebate program, uh, and so they'll, they'll sell you water cheap, but mm-hmm. then they'll also pay you to not use that water on your lawn. And that's a, a high-profile so-called conservation campaign that, as far as I'm concerned, is more about propaganda than effectiveness. That's special. I, yeah, I didn't know about that. That really is uh, entertaining. <clears throat> a lot of people um, – it, it's an interesting thing. It's a kind of a side note, but maybe water uh, obviously has something to do with it. Uh, a lot of people move to the southwest to avoid uh, allergies. Uh, they missed right. their lawns back east and their flowers and their certain kind of the uh, flora that they were accustomed to. So they started planting them there. Right. And then uh, people got the allergies again. Uh, <laughs> it's a strange thing. Uh, there yeah. is a certain look uh, that is a more desert look for people's lawns, but there are people who are recreating uh, golf courses uh, in their own yards. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, uh, the, the, the real estate developers were the first ones to hit on this uh, uh, strategy. So a lot of palm trees were planted in Los Angeles back in the, in the 20s and 30s. And palm trees are, are universally a, a symbol of the oasis and water uh, abundance. And uh, all these palm trees were imported and planted and irrigated to give people the feeling they were moving to an oasis. But all that, all those palms required imported water. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, it's it, and and that ended up being a bit of a problem because everybody believed them and showed up and then demanded palm trees for themselves. So, uh, 
let's talk about California for a minute. Uh, I, I go out there in the summer, as listeners know, and uh, that usually means the excitement of when I'm listening to the radio, hearing uh, speeches about how I shouldn't take long showers or maybe skip a shower now and then, don't water my lawn, or if I do, don't water it too much. So there's a lot of um, what you might call nagging or dunning or um, moral suasion is the uh, old-fashioned phrase for it, where to make sure there isn't a shortage, they um, they try to make me feel guilty about my excessive uh, use. And it seems to be okay, though. So what's the worry, in, say, in California and San Diego or in uh, – in Northern California, everything's fine. I've never had a situation where I couldn't um, take a shower. Yeah, yeah, it's always there. Yeah. What's yeah. the what's the what's the crisis? Is there a crisis? Um, there's a crisis, but it's it's kind of showing up on uh, in I won't say unexpected places, but the the most. So the, the first thing I want to point out to you, which is uh, actually let me let me get to the easy thing first, then we'll get to the more complicated thing. The first thing is is that uh, the the environment is bearing the brunt of the uh, of the of the drought, for example, and the overconsumption. And by the environment, I mean that aquifers are being drained uh, in an unsustainable way. So those aquifers are not going to be available. Uh, there will not be water in them when you want it. Uh, rivers are drained. Uh, the San Joaquin River for for decades uh, has been dry. Uh, and it used to flow north into the to the Sacramento Delta. Entire lakes have been drained, Owens Lake, Tulare Lake. So the environment is, has borne the brunt of our water consumption uh, to keep the taps on, so to speak. Um, the other uh, uh, dimension of this, which is which is really, I don't know, kind of a, a, a like a practical joke, is that uh, many, many water utilities get a huge amount of revenue from water sales. And I, I mentioned earlier that uh, they load their costs onto the volumetric price of water. What that means is that uh, they're making money when you use water. And if you stop using water, you cut it back and you, you, you believe those messages, then their revenues drop much faster than their costs. And that's a huge problem given that they have you know, millions, even billions of dollars of debt. So what you tend to have are water conservation campaigns that are out there to kind of make you feel good, but really they don't want you to use less water because that's going to hit the bond rating. And a lot of water utilities pay a lot more attention to bond rating than they do to other things. Yeah, that, that, would, that would make some sense. So do you think um, – let's um, – I mean I happen to love Mono Lake, for example, which I think is one of the lakes that's – that's being drained, um, that's being affected. Is that correct? What do you know? Uh, Mono Lake is under uh, a court order uh, since the uh, 1982, I believe, and it was uh, uh, considered one of the great victories of environmentalists against uh, essentially growth. Um, in that court order, uh, Los Angeles was ordered to stop draining Mono Lake uh, because it was going to destroy that ecosystem. And now they literally have, uh, you know, court mandated water levels in that lake. So Los Angeles is not allowed to drop the elevation of that lake below a certain point. And of course, a lot of it's not under Los Angeles's control. There's droughts, as you mentioned, there are other factors. Absolutely. So that that obviously can affect how much LA can take, you're saying as well. They're they're stuck with some minimum level that they have to comply with. Yes. And and you know, to Los Angeles's credit, this is actually a a, a welcome development, but it, I think people like me have been talking about it for years. They're looking a lot more closely at what you would call local supplies. So the Los Angeles River has been paved for decades uh, as a essentially a storm drain. And now they're trying to get that water to infiltrate into the groundwater. They're also trying to clean up the groundwater that's been contaminated by uh, defense industry chemicals so they can use those aquifers for storage. Uh, they're going into recycling wastewater so that can be put back into the to the system and used again. So that there's a there's a huge expensive move, but very very welcome for Los Angeles to to provide get more of its water locally, given that it's losing access to those imported supplies. So going back to the to the this question though of how to handle the, the the fact that if we price it relatively inexpensively, people want to use a lot of it, and that's going to drain some lakes and rivers, cause some problems with aquifers, et cetera. One view would say, okay, well, so what? Not a big deal. Um, it's all fine. It's you know we should just leave it. It's great. Everybody gets to use as much water as they want. Uh, 
it's a shocking thing, but I, I think I have the number correct. Uh, farming uses about 80% of the water, and, and that's great because California's got this great farm system. So it's all working well. What's the argument other than aesthetics or just stability for the environment? Are there actual um, – uh, is there potential for a, what, I, what would be the equivalent of, say, a, a blackout with electric power? Where you literally can't get any water is that is that a possible future for California? Yo, absolutely. I mean, if the water's not there, you're not going to get it. Um, you know, I, I did a, a, a crazy back of envelope calculation uh, for replacing California's water with desalination, which a lot of people think of as the the holy grail. And putting aside the massive uh, energy costs and environmental costs of running desalination, you'd need 500 plus desal plants for California. Um, and they just spent 20 years fighting to get one near San Diego. So that's not going to happen. Um, what, what would happen? Uh, so the drought, the California is entering its third year of drought there. And, and another, a study came out recently saying that California might have a 20 or a hundred year drought. So let's, you know, putting aside. hundred years is a long time. That's a long time. <laughs> it's yeah, a big that's, drought. That, that starts to become relevant, right? Yeah. So um, if, if California's third year of drought and fourth year of drought goes on, um, what you're going to get uh, in terms of actual direct human impacts, um, agriculture will get in trouble first. Um, that will cause a lot of political problems because, um, you know, the, uh, you know the, the agricultural lobby, as you know, is very, very strong. Um, and they will, uh, there will be all kinds of problems. Uh, then you have... Um, the, 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 the increasing incidence of wildfires. Uh, many people have their homes in the middle of uh, 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 vegetated areas. Uh, those will burn up. Uh, I mean, you can, you can keep going down the, the, the list. Uh, you'll, have, you'll have Las Vegas is actually spending a billion dollars to build a straw, uh, they call it. It's actually a very large tunnel deep into Lake Mead. Uh, and that is because Las Vegas wants to be the last entity to take water out of Lake Mead should it drop below where the turbines operate Hoover Dam. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of their strategy is to be the last one standing at least, you know, until that water runs out. Um, so there's, there's many different implications coming, coming down the pike. But as you point out, uh, water is a renewable resource. It doesn't, it, you know, it, it evaporates, uh, it gets spread around, it gets moved around, but eventually it gets back up into the clouds and it comes back down. Right. Why is there? Why is California getting worse? Uh, you'd think it'd just be kind of stable or in some kind of equilibrium. Why is it getting worse? It's getting worse because uh, to just to, to to just oversimplify the the consumption is is ahead of that renewable supply, and that means that we're mining the aquifers. That means that um, we're counting on wet years. They, this is this comes up in the news all the time. If we just get one wet year, we'll succeed. <laughs> we'll get back. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like a you know, gambler. You know, I, it, I, put, it I put I put it all I put I put it on red and I just double it through that. Well, I just double it every time. Actually, I have to hit it and I'll win unless I yeah. get unless I get wiped out. And like, yeah, yeah. And 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 the wipeout. So and, and businesses are going to get, you know, for example, cut off from water because when 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 you get to the, the push comes to shove, you know, no matter how much people water people are putting in their pools, residences are going to get water before uh, businesses uh, before golf courses, of course, before farmers. So you'll end up getting a, the, the, uh, an almighty uh, political fight over who's going to get uh, cut in a shortage. And that, that's happened before. In the, in the 90s, uh, San Diego got cut very hard compared to Los Angeles. And that, has, uh, that was one of the reasons why they've been fighting for years in court over various um, options of trying to avoid that again. So I want to read a quote from the book kind of um, related to all these – this discussion of California and the general outlook, and it reminds me of something. So here's, here's the quote. In the beginning was demand, and water managers treated it as sacred. Modern managers, managers keep their supply-side bias for several reasons. They associate growing consumption with growing wealth. They prefer to drill wells than ask customers to use less water. They're engineers who like to build things. They need to maintain reliability as politicians invite more people to use more water. Close quote. Uh, it reminded me a little bit of roads. Um, when we have too many people living in an area, instead of asking to pay for the roads or to uh, put, impose some kind of tax on, on their usage of the roads, we just build more of them. Um, we try to anyway because there's a natural political bias toward doing that. And there's something, by the way, I want to just – for a second, I'll, I, it's not always 
obviously good to to tax roads or to to price water, but in general, uh, according to scarcity, but it seems in this case, in case of water, uh, pricing it would be a good idea. But it does depend on what you do with the money. So that would be part of the uh, the question, right? If you if you add a price to include the scarcity effect and not just the cost, to include the fact that there are these longer run environmental impacts, aesthetics, as well as possible crises, uh, you'd have to do something productive with the money. So that that's something that. Um, yeah, that's and that's relevant. yeah. I mean, that's always relevant. And in the case of water, I mean, you get into this kind of discussion around you know carbon taxes and and where the money should go. But in the case of water, it's it's pretty uh, obvious what to do. And uh, Singapore, for example, which has one of the better water utilities in the world, um, does this. They they charge a pretty high price, uh, roughly uh, about eight dollars per per thousand gallons. Uh, and they use that money to build a very uh, reliable system. It's, uh, it is a lot of engineering, but they, they monitor water from the rain all the way to the discharge. They recycle that discharge. They actually uh, sell the recycled water as what they call new water. Uh, and the new water uh, is under in high demand from industrial concerns because it's so clean. Um, and then they also use uh, some of that money to, to subsidize the poorer households in Singapore. Uh, so that they address this problem of of, of equity uh, that comes up all the time when people talk about higher water prices. Even though we're talking about moving prices from, you know, say five or in Las Vegas's case, a dollar per thousand gallons to maybe two dollars per thousand gallons. I'm not sure who's going to go to the poorhouse with that kind of pricing. It's a hundred percent increase. It's a hundred percent increase. Exactly. That's what the headlines are. Hundred percent of nothing is still, you know. <laughs> Uh, a lot, so uh, or, or not much. So that's that's kind of the 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 way I recommend it. And 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 let me let me point out that there's there's this norm uh, of of pricing water to recover costs and and not make a so-called profit. And I argue that uh, the cost of the water, in terms of scarcity or replacing the water, or whatever, is a cost that should be included in the price. But there's lots of lawyers on the other side um, who represent lawns, for example, who, who don't like that, 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 uh, logic. Yeah. Uh, I guess, um, I guess I can see that the, let's talk about the technology for a minute. Uh, sure. so desalinization, desalinate, how did you say it? Desalinization? I call it desalination. You can, Des- desalinization is another way of saying it. It's just, but it's, and it's longer, so it's more just call impressive. It, just say des- desal. Uh, okay. Taking the salt out of salt water, ocean water is something that, uh, people wanted to do, uh, for a long time, and we're, I assume we're a little bit better at it than we were, say, 50 years ago. Um, is there any technological possibilities for water the way there might be for, say, other things that are precious? So in a lot of the things that we consume, we get better and better at it. Um, fracking is an obvious example of how we've been able to get more oil out of the ground uh, we get higher gas mileage for our cars than we got 50 years ago. So the, not only do we – is it cheaper to get gas out of the ground, but uh, potentially compared to the alternative time. But we can also make a, a gallon go farther – further, excuse me. So is um, – we don't – I don't – have we made some tech, – is there any technological progress in water? And is if I'm right that there isn't so much, is that because of the lack of – there aren't a lot of people doing it for profit? Um, yeah, the, well, there's actually a lot of profit. So the, you know, the, the utilities might be, you know, so-called break even, but they're buying expensive gear from, from General Electric and, and big, uh, engineering service companies that are making quite good profits. So, you know, costs are, are on the, on the, for the utility is a profit for somebody else quite often. Uh, but to, to, in terms of technology, uh, yes, the, the desalination has been getting better and better. Um, the problem is, in terms of desal as the silver bullet, uh, is uh, number one, you've got a lot of users who are, are still not willing to pay uh, the price for desalinated water, those farmers you talked about earlier. Uh, number two is that even if you desalinate the water right next to the ocean, uh, uh, then you've got to okay, get it get to it customers. To somebody, yeah. And it's, it's heavy, right? It's, uh, water is, uh, you know, it's about eight pounds a gallon. It's a, it's a kilo, a liter. Uh, and and Pumping uh, water up a hill is extremely energy intensive, um, and ignoring uh, all of the, the 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 climate impacts of using more energy to do something when rain is you know could deliver it for free, uh, you just have to have a, a lot of uh, uh, power production directed to moving water around. 
Can we go back to San Diego for a minute? You mentioned sure. you mentioned uh, that they get their water from very far away, Northern California, the Colorado River, and then it's pumped over and up up and around and over hills. I've seen those. I guess I've seen those. I've seen pipes in in California. I, I was I suspected they carried water, but I didn't know. But you can see them snaking over hills and yes. in rows. Uh, they're ugly. Um, they're they're an environmental eyesore. Um, it, that must be extremely expensive. Is is Cal is San Diego subsidizing the water for its citizens through general tax revenues? And talk about uh, subsidies to water generally, um, and how people don't pay the same amount all the time. Yeah, the the generally speaking, uh, most urban uh, water users are paying uh, pr- more or less the cost of these systems. Uh, there, the the, two, the 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 big exception I already met. One big exception I already mentioned is that is that they take the water out of the environment for free. So that's a pretty heavy duty subsidy. The other one is that a lot of the systems that they're using have been built fifty or hundred years ago, um, and there's a subsidy in the sense that they're not paying prices that reflect the cost of renewing those systems, which is why um, uh, uh, the 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 uh, engineering. Uh, organizations say that that the U.S. has a a, a D uh, grade on infrastructure. You know, you've already talked about the fact that they, of course, they would give a D, but there are some serious leakages in these systems, for example. Uh, and and so current I customers I, when are, I com- when I complain about that D rating because the engineers are self interested, I'm not suggesting it's an A. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. So you know, maybe it's not a D, maybe it's a C minus. It's yeah. not really good, right? So, so there's a bit of a subsidy from you know our forefathers who actually paid for these systems, and, and you know, a uh, uh, massive, massive billions of of dollars that has to be spent to renew those systems that don't necessarily show up on water prices today. Um, the the biggest subsidies by far are uh, subsidies that go to farmers in terms of projects that the Bureau of Reclamation and the Army Corps of Engineers has built. Uh, and collected 10 cents on the dollar, for example. So taxpayers are subsidizing farmers, as well as what I call an opportunity cost subsidy in the sense that somebody has the right to use water for free that is very, very valuable, that their neighbor will be willing to pay a lot for, but they can't purchase that right because either there's no market or because of a bureaucracy directing it to their their favorite farmers instead of the, the newer farmers. And the other point to make, which is <clears throat> implicit in all of this, is that it the water in some areas may be priced to cover costs, but the costs are endogenous. They're not written stone. And of course, if if uh, utilities come up with more and more expensive ways uh, to to get water, rather than discouraging people from using the water that we already have, that's not necessarily a good thing. Absolutely, yeah. And so you might have you know Las Vegas is building their straw, and I've said this before, and 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 it happened uh, also in Australia. But what happens is uh, uh, Las Vegas spends a billion dollars on the straw. That goes onto customers' bills. Let's say it goes into the volumetric side of customers' bills. Customers look at higher prices and they say, I'm not going to use as much water as I was. And so then the demand for water drops by enough that they don't need the straw. And uh, this happened absolutely in, in Australia where they built four or five different desal plants, one for every major city. The price of water went up by a lot. Uh, it rained as well. So the desal plants have been shut down uh, and demand has dropped because of higher prices. And now they have billion-dollar mothball desalination plants. So bef- one, one more issue in, in, in the developed world, and then we'll move to the poorer world, parts of the world. Uh, you talk about how water pricing encourages sprawl, and it's related to what you've been talking about. So ex- explain that. Yeah, the, 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 the simple explanation is that when uh, a, new, a new community is added onto the edge, a new suburbs is added onto the edge of an existing community, uh, then, uh, and that community is, is charged, the new one, is charged the same water price as the existing customers under what's called postage stamp pricing. So, you know, when you send a letter across the United States, you pay the same whether you send it across town or across the country. So that's postage stamp pricing. And what that means is that those new communities are, are not paying the marginal cost of their additional demand or even the additional network uh, reaching into that community. Uh, they're paying uh, an average cost for the entire network, which uh, tends to mean that the existing customers are subsidizing growth uh, for the new customers. Yeah, they're free riding on those past investments, essentially, because they're not covering any of those costs. Is that a, is that a right way to say it? Yes, and, and even worse, they're, they're free riding on the new investments. So the, the, the system expansion to serve the new community, say it's uh, 2,000 homes, 
will be divided um, uh, uh, among those 2,000 homes plus all the existing yeah, customers. Yeah. Lovely. Um, so again, last time before we, we moved to the poor part of the world, uh, pardon the metaphor, but couldn't I argue that in the United States, the glass is, say, half full? Uh, our water is handled fairly well by the government, or would you say that that uh, we have dramatic things we could do to make things better? And if so, what are those things, and how would the what would the improvements be? Uh, you could say it's half full because most people in the country have uh, a good supply of of drinkable water. Um, you could say it's half empty in the sense that if we allowed, for example, uh, water markets to work for farmers then agricultural productivity would, would jump dramatically. Uh, and if you had uh, proper water pricing for scarcity in cities, then you would not have, for example, uh, Atlanta going to court uh, to try and take water away from Florida, uh, and, and which is uh, depleting the, their action is depleting and destroying that ecosystem. So a lot of the, the problems in, in the US that are really good for newspaper sales uh, would go away if we manage water as an economic good. So I just want to close this section with a nice, really nice quote I love from your from your book. Uh, and by the way, it's a very short book. It's about 100 pages. Um, it's an easy read, and you'll get a, uh, a nice education in addition to what you're learning here about water. So here's the quote, and it's uh, in defense of uh, charging for water, relative uh, a, a relatively smart way of charging uh, using prices to cover um, to measure to excuse me to match the true cost. So here's the quote. Prices generate revenues and reduce demand, but they also give customers choices. A regulation on outdoor watering may annoy a granny with flowers. A desalination plant may annoy environmentalists. An education campaign is condescending to some and a waste of breath on others. A campaign to install low-flow toilets may install sparkling receptacles in unused second bathrooms. Prices send a direct signal at the same time as they accommodate many responses – Customers can choose their own mix of technologies and techniques. Some will take shorter showers. Others will install drip irrigation. Some will shower at work. Others will just pay more. A higher price for water, like a higher price for any commodity, allows people to choose how much water to use. Choice is a pleasant option compared to water shortages or tickets from water cops. So that's a very elegant, uh, eloquent, uh, nice defense of, of pricing water appropriately, and I I salute you for it. So let's use that as our segue into uh, the poorest parts of the world. And I want to start actually with a somewhat not quite as poor as some. I want to start with Egypt. Uh, Learn something fascinating here. Uh, two things that are fascinating. You say, another quote, dams also increase evaporation. Something you don't think about uh, when you put water in one place, uh, which is a lake created by a dam. So dams also increase evaporation by holding water in reservoirs. Lake Nasser, the desert reservoir created by Aswan High Dam, loses roughly 12 cubic kilometers of water each year. That quantity, over 20% of Egypt's water supply, works out to 400 liters per Egyptian per day. Those losses are unacceptable when 40% of Cairo's 17 million inhabitants receive tap water for fewer than three hours Per day, so you're saying if I live in Cairo and I turn on my tap at the wrong time, nothing comes out. Is that what you're telling me? Kissing air—that's all you get. What's going on there? Uh, well, in in Cairo and and many other cities, uh, what you have is uh, demand greater than supply. Uh, I hate to say it over and over again, and uh, they only have a certain amount of water to put in the system, so. You know, you remember the the concept of rolling black uh, brownouts or rolling blackouts, and when California had its energy crisis, uh, most cities uh, explain what explain what that is actually. Well, yeah, it basically means that the one section of the city is blacked out uh, because there's not enough energy being generated to serve all sections of the city. So they they black out one section at a time, uh, whether it's for scheduled a, or not, for a fixed yeah. amount of time. So they, yeah, it, hopefully for a fixed amount of time, not all day, but just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, this happens, in, you know, in, in, in uh, so you mentioned the statistic from Cairo. The worst I've ever seen is that um, uh, people in uh, uh, Jeddah in Saudi, uh, where water is sold uh, at a 99% subsidy, so it's extremely cheap. At, at one point, they were up to, to 20 days without water, and then they would get water for some time during the 21st day. And then they would wait for another 20 days. So why aren't they taking, why aren't, why is in Egypt, draining the Nile, doing the things that San Diego and Las Vegas are doing, 
taking some Mediterranean water, de- desalinating it, or is it just a political issue? They think it's they'd rather just make people do without water now and then. Well, uh, it seems it seems that you know, given the price that they're charging to uh, the Kyrenes, right, or or any other city, given the price they're charging, they don't have enough money to build a distribution network, let alone a treatment plant that can create enough volume to meet the demand at that low price. So if you were to raise prices, uh, you would see a drop in demand, uh, although in this case, they, they, the, the demand would, ru- would jump because uh, anybody who goes on to 24-7 service uh, tends to uh, use it uh, uh, more than they were when they had to wait for uh, hours or days. Um, but demand would jump and then demand would actually drop down again. That's the pattern you see when people get used to reliable water. And the additional revenue would make it possible to deliver, uh, to, 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 to pay for the supply network. I hope I said that. Yeah. So, so they're way. just, uh, and by demand, of course, you mean, technically, you mean quantity demanded, um, moving along a demand curve, right? Sometimes you're pushing it out, sometimes you're pushing it again, but we're, we're talking casually here on, uh, on Econ Talk. Yes, it's well. It's it's you know to 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 pull apart that last thing I just said. You know there there are places where uh, people are getting water only a few days of the week, let's say, and what happens is they leave their tap open all the time. Then they fill up their massive tanks or cisterns in their in on the top of the building or underneath their building uh, until the tap shuts off again, and then they use that stored water for their household use. And when people, uh, so this is a, a massive uh, personal infrastructure cost to uh, fix the problem called the public infrastructure doesn't work. So when they go on to a 24-7 pressurized system, not only does the water quality increase dramatically because now it's not going to be full of crazy bacteria and so on, but also they use they end up using less water because they, they can get it whenever they want to. So these are places, we're talking about cities uh, in poor or poorer countries but of course, in extremely poor areas, uh, clean water may not just be available with any reliability at all. Uh, many people have argued that availability of clean water is the single biggest environmental issue in the world. Um, how are we? How are countries dealing with that? Of course, at the root of this, often is just bad governance that has nothing to do with engineering or um, technology. It's just uh, the government's not run very well. Uh, right. Give give us an overview of the poorest parts of the world, uh, the different ways that they're dealing with water, and what might be done if uh, things were different. So there's lots of uh, answers. I'll give you a, a couple examples. One from uh, a, a typical situation in, in uh, India, for example, is that the price of water is set very low, uh, and so uh, uh, the, there's no revenue to the utility. Uh, they are only going to provide water to the core of the urban area, not to the to the periphery or to the slums. Um, and uh, then they only provide it a, a certain number of hours per day. That's kind of a typical scenario for a developing country. Uh, what happens then is that um, people are going to have those tanks. They're going to have uh, 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 suction pumps that they drop into the mains uh, that will try and suck out as uh, much water as there uh, when it's uh, uh, around. Uh, this tends to create negative pressure, which sucks in sewage from all the cracks that are in the mains, which are next to the sewage lines, uh, if you have sewage. Uh, so they have contamination. They've got uh, all kinds of problems of supply. And that is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, directly related to the government putting a price limit on water because uh, they think it's uh, the proper way to help poor people. Uh, another example, which has uh, been in the news for years and years and years, is in, in Cochabamba, Brazil, uh, sorry, Brazil, Bolivia, um, where uh, back in the 90s, uh, they uh, privatized the water system under a lot of pressure from the World Bank. Cochabamba is the second largest city. Uh, it was served, by, uh, served very badly by a, uh, a municipal uh, company that was corrupt and not reaching other areas. And uh, what happened is that the uh, uh, the bank, the World Bank, stepped in and said, uh, "We will finance uh, uh, improvements and so on, but you have to privatize." They had a single bidder uh, that was a consortium of of companies, uh, local and international, which in- included Bechtel out of San Francisco. Uh, and then, as part of the deal, uh, the consortium said, "We need to control all the water supply," which is where we got that expression. They they privatized the rain. 
this was very unpopular with the locals, especially locals who had cisterns because they didn't want to pay for water service. Eventually, the consortium was kicked out and Samapa was put back in charge, not providing water. So uh, that's, uh, you know, kind of this public-private, public failure. And, and you know, we're, I mean, the most, the worst nepotism and corruption you can think of. So, I mean, that's just an amazing example that shows you how hard it is to improve the world, right? So you have a right. lousy government. So they do a bad job. Say, well, we know how to solve that. Right. We just have to put it in private hands. Of course, right. the government's in charge of figuring out how the private hands work. Give right. it to some friends, skim some off the top, presumably, and that doesn't work very well either. And right. the problem yeah. isn't private or public. It's that the public isn't – the governance system there is is broken. Yeah, and I, I point the finger at regulators all the time because they have the monopoly power when it comes down to these systems. I mean they can they can tell a water utility to, to jump and the utility will say how high. So if the regulator is, is incompetent or corrupt, then you are in trouble. Um, but let me, you know, let me put a, a bright light on a couple of things. One of them, or just, I'll just give one example that was positive, And that was, uh, you know, kind of the difference that an individual makes. And, and that was when um, the, the, the general manager, uh, a new general manager was appointed to the Phnom Penh Water Authority in, in Cambodia. And Cambodia is not only one of the poorest countries in the world, but also one of the most corrupt countries in the world. And, and this guy basically said, uh, I'm going to have a professional system. And he uh, he insisted on getting paid for the water. So the army uh, had not paid its bill for years. It was a very big customer. Uh, he went to go, the, the manager went to collect the bill and the guy put a gun to his head and said, army doesn't pay. And the guy said, I'm a good Buddhist, do what you have to. And then the guy rolled and he paid. And that payment set an example for other customers. So they started collecting money. They started firing staff that were incompetent or corrupt. And they started rewarding staff who were, who were competent. And not only did they uh, expand that system to the slums in Phnom Penh, um, but they also lowered the price of water, especially to the people who were underserved because they were buying water off of trucks at 10 times the official price, but they had no official service. And when they got connected to the official system, the, the poorest people of Phnom Penh suddenly saw their quality improve and their price drop. And that was a, you know, it's, it's, it's widely cited as a success. And it's based on essentially a, a guy doing the right thing. Which is hard to rely on, unfortunately. Correct. But but yes. it's glorious when it when it happens. Um, right. No, you shouldn't rely on it. But it's 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 it, it does show show that that things can be fixed sometimes. Yeah. No. Sometimes. You know, as an economist, I'm always uh, I always like the um, I love the Milton Friedman quote, which I'm going to butcher, but we'll, I'll get it linked up to the right version of it. The quote is something like, uh, instead of uh, trying to find good people to uh, run things, you want to have a system where the incentives are such that even bad people do the right thing. And that here's a system case where the incentives were to do the wrong thing. And this one person overcame those incentives. And uh, I always like to point out he, he was, uh, it's not irrational to be moral. (laughs) Some people seem to think that, well, all the incentives were, were for him to be corrupt and get rich too. So that would have been rational on his part. Well, okay, fine. It would have been, but it would have been a horrible thing to do. And he showed you can rise, you can rise above that, which is, uh, which is lovely. Uh, Yes, exactly. In a better world, uh, what what kind of, you've mentioned some of the mistakes that, that uh, are made in, in some systems where, I mean, it seems like some of the, the, uh, problem is a political problem, not so much a uh, a corruption problem necessarily. It's the fact that people are used to having water be cheap. They may not be willing to take the chance of paying a higher price uh, in return for guaranteed service that's available elsewhere in the world. Is that a big part of the problem that, that the public will not put up with higher prices? Uh, they see them as exploitive. Is this a, essentially the equivalent of laws against price gouging that that I believe hurt most people rather than help them in, in, in when prices are kept artificially low? Or is there more going on here in, in the poorest countries of the world? Uh, it's – well, a lot of – you know, it's, it's, it's quite sad actually that uh, there's a lot of outside or interference with water policy in the poorest countries of the world. Um, and – uh, one example that I, I think is uh, actually uh, relevant is is the Millennium Development Goal uh, for Water, uh, which originally stated that uh, the the goal was to re- reduce by half the number of people who lack access to safe water. 
Seems like a good goal. Seems like a good goal. So, uh, okay, tough to measure. So let's change the goal to reduce by half the number of people who lack access to an improved water source, which means more or less a pipe with cement around it. And uh, it doesn't necessarily... Instead of, say... Safe water. What? (laughs) Instead instead of safe water, it's... I thought this was improved. What's improved about it besides the cement? Anything? That's the improvement. Okay. <laughs> okay. So they use the word, they use it in, in quotes, improved water source. And what happened is that these countries that are, you know, chasing their, their position on the, on the development tables and international aid and so on, they started to put in lots of improved water sources. And they didn't necessarily make sure there was either water in the water source or drinkable water in the water source. Um, and so, you know, the statistic that's widely cited is that around a billion people lack access to safe water. They're using that Millennium Development Goal as the, as the benchmark, but it's actually more like 3 billion people because they lack access to safe drinking water. What are those people doing now? Uh, they are getting sick. Uh, they are walking. I mean, it's, it's like a, a terrible, terrible stereotype, but it's, it's, it's absolutely true that, uh, uh, you know, in a lot of uh, situations, young girls are set off, sent off to get water for the household. Um, they might be walking a couple kilometers. Uh, they might be raped on the way. Uh, this is, it's a very well-known problem. Uh, they are certainly not going to go to school. Uh, so you basically, uh, because of, of the lack of access to uh, uh, safe drinking water, you have, uh, you, you know, you lose half of the upcoming population. Um, if the uh, water, and, and then they bring the water back and the water's contaminated or it's put in, it's clean when it comes from the, the truck, which is half the time, but then it's put in a contaminated container and people go to the bathroom, they don't wash their hands and then they contaminate the water that way. So there's a, a massive, massive problem with waterborne disease. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, the, the biggest public health improvements ever to happen in the developed world are uh, drinking water and sanitation. That's what happened for us. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. A hundred years ago, that's why uh, all of our our child mortality dropped and so on. In developing countries, they still have that problem. And that's why, you know, the uh, contaminated water is the the leading cause of death, um, as far as I I recall, uh, uh, around the world. So let's let's close by talking about governance more generally. I'm going to start with a developed world example that you give, and you can expand on that. And then uh, we'll talk about poor countries, um, and it'll, it'll bring us full circle with some other issues that are frequently mentioned here on EconTalk. Um, you, you, you talk about the fact that in, in America, the people who are – there are different kinds of systems for water management. Obviously, there are sometimes municipal utilities, and sometimes there are investor uh, utilities that are um, – investor-produced utilities that – that are regulated by a group of of bureaucrats or, or regulators. Um, and you say, you know, some do a good job, some not so good. Here's what you say that I thought was was the, the punchline. Quote, I have a hard time knowing whether managers are doing their best in these cases, but I worry when failure has no consequences. The Tennessee Valley Authority, for example, spilled toxic tailwater into a river and destroyed homes in 2008. How did managers pay the resulting $1.3 billion in fines and cleanup costs? They raised prices for customers. Managers with skin in the game will work harder. They will be diligent about water quality when they drink from the same tap. They will pay more attention when customers can choose a different tap. And those are, you know, profound to me, fundamental lessons about how to make things work well. Um, have people pay the consequences of their actions, which is what you mean by skin in the game. Competition encourages people to have to do a good job because people have alternatives. Um, in general, around the world, water is – some it's private, some it's public, but it's often a monopoly. There's there's no competition. So take us home by talking about how we might, if, at least in a perfect world, imagine – managers having skin in the game and there'd be some competition for the services they provide. Right. So ironically, the, the, the easiest place to look for competition, uh, is, uh, for urban water. 
uh, is in developing countries uh, and where, you know, these people who are in the, the favelas or the ghettos who are not served, um, they might be uh, served by tankers, they might be served by kiosks that have uh, purification points and so on. Uh, you can have two kiosks right next to each other, you know, in a price battle, in a quality battle, try, in, in, uh, trying to, to get customers. Sometimes they, what they do is they put the water from the, the tap uh, in a bottle and then they put the water from their uh, supply in a bottle and they put a, a, a microscope for people to look at what's in the water supply. Um, and that tends to be quite good for customer conversion. So um, in developing countries where, these, where this competition is allowed, um, and remember that the city government might not allow this competition because it interferes with the monopoly, um, you, you can have uh, fairly dramatic improvements in water quality. Uh, that's why a lot of people in developing countries drink bottled water because they do know that they don't get sick when they drink it. Uh, in developed countries, uh, it's a lot harder to compete with the monopoly because they have uh, uh, ridiculous economies of scale. That's how we get water prices that are you know, $5 for a thousand gallons because they have this uh, immense pipe network. And uh, I, I speak of uh, kind of two ways of increasing virtual competition uh, among uh, 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 those monopolies. Uh, one is that uh, you can do benchmarking, uh, and there's a, a fantastic effort being uh, supported by the World Bank called IBNet. Um, you can put up a link to that. And, and, and the you know, United States utilities are not participating in this effort, by the way. And remember, monopolies, they do what they want, and that doesn't mean they have to participate in benchmarking. <laughs> Um, and so what you have is benchmarking uh, at IBNet where they're showing leakage per uh, uh, kilometer of pipes. They are looking at the number of personnel per uh, thousand customers, which tends to give you an idea of overstaffing. Uh, and all kinds of other uh, dimensions are reported in IBNet. And that benchmarking is, is helpful. In the, in the Netherlands, uh, the water utilities, which are all uh, you know, essentially pri- uh, public corporations, so they're municipal, but they have a, an association called uh, Vevin, which is V-E-W-I-N, and they put out reports every four years benchmarking against each other uh, because they have that, they've institutionalized that kind of performance uh, uh, and, and service. And they, and they want to, uh, you know, beat each other uh, as well as show to their customers they're doing a good job. So benchmarking is a very uh, good way to, to create kind of a virtual competition among monopolies. Um, that said, we have to remember that all these water systems have different costs based on their different sources of water. If they're getting water from desalination, that's different than getting it from a river, which is different from getting it from groundwater, which happens to be usually the cheapest source of supplies. Um, another way that I wanted to uh, kind of talk about competition uh, is, is uh, an idea that I brought up in, in my book is I call it performance insurance. Uh, and what that means is that um, uh, the utilities are, required to buy a bond. This insurance idea came out of the TVA spill, by the way. And the utilities are required to buy insurance against essentially service failure. Um, and what that means is that the insurance company uh, uh, has, is going to pay if the utility fails in terms of a water contamination or a, a broken pipe. And that helps the uh, service quality improve because the insurance company, which doesn't want to pay any money, is going to be all over that utility in terms of improving its practices. Um, this is uh, and, and it re- this this whole idea requires that insurance companies compete and that it not be corrupt. And you know, I'm I'm not trying to displace the problem uh, into another problem, yeah. but I think you know there's some potential there. You know, at least thinking about it these ways. And and one last thing I'll add is that. Um, in, in Scotland, which is run by is one large utility called Scottish Water, it's a public utility, they've introduced uh, what they call retail competition. So the, there's one utility that owns the pipes and supplies the water, but they've got competing companies that are essentially sending bills and doing customer service and repairing leaks. And that competition is, is uh, uh, possible because it's not actually a monopolistic service to do customer billing. And so they're trying to unbundle the monopoly into to pieces that will allow competition. And that's been quite a success in Scotland and it's being adopted in England now. I make Adam Smith very happy, I think. Exactly. <laughs> the grand old man is looking, smiling. Yeah. My guest today has been David Zetlin. David, thank you for being part of Econ Talk. His book is Living with Water Scarcity. Thanks so much, Russ. It was a pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. 
For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.